As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. Right now, and we're going to do this quickly because every second matters with Susan Collins, It's very simple. She is associated with the University of Michigan, but far more her sterling academics that we've seen from Susan Collins at Harvard and then deep down the Charles River uh, to MIT. And of course, as Michael McKee goes, plunging across to near South Station in the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston. Michael McKee with Susan Collins. Thank you very much, Tom. We have the Boston Fed president here with us in Washington, and we'd like to thank you for joining us today here uh, at Bloomberg and uh, to our audience around the world on Bloomberg Radio and Television. Thank you for joining us. Let's start with the numbers because they just came out. Uh, Personal income up three-tenths, personal spending two-tenths, and then uh, the PCE indicator, which, of course, is the Fed's favorite. Three-tenths for the headline, three-tenths for the core. Uh, what does this tell you about the state of the economy and where the Fed is in its inflation fight? So uh, let me start by saying just absolutely delighted to be here with you. Uh, look forward to our conversation. Um, and of course, I haven't had a chance to dig deeply into the numbers yet. And sometimes the, uh, you know, the details actually are important in terms of understanding the story. But starting with the, the PCE inflation, that, that's about what was expected um, and so uh, that is some positive news. At the same time, let me say two things about that. One is that the monthly data are really noisy. We've seen that. And so uh, one month of uh, move in a kind of more helpful direction is not something that really indicates a sustained change. And the other thing I'll say is that if you recognizing the high, the elevated numbers we saw in December and January, this a bit lower number that we expected just means that the three-month average is about what the 12-month average uh, is. And so that's not a, a lot of progress. We still do have more uh, work to do and more to see to know that inflation is really on a sustained downward path. Well, you're on record as saying you favor at least one more move uh, by the Fed. Does this sort of lock it in for May that uh, you do it because inflation is still at a high level and you don't pause for a month to see how things are going? Well, actually, what um, I think I'm on record as saying is that I'm highly data dependent. And so um, my assessment um, at the last meeting uh, just last week with the summary of economic projections did suggest an additional uh, rate hike. 
and then pausing and holding over the year. But I need to assess all of the data that's going to come in between now and when our next meeting is in early May. And, um, you know, where I am at the moment, uh, the new data that I've seen just in the past week uh, has not materially changed how I'm thinking about things. But I certainly don't make a decision uh, this far in advance about what I'm going to think is the right thing to do. Well, the markets have looked at all the data, and they're pricing in four rate cuts this year. Are uh, traders crazy? What I would say is obviously there's a range of views about these things. I mean, look, inflation is just really too high. When, when we talk about price stability, uh, to me what that means is a level of low stable inflation where no one's thinking about inflation. Well, everybody is thinking about inflation, and that really does mean we have more work to do. And what history has told us is that you need to have uh, conditions sufficiently tight and then really hold the course in order to know that you have, uh, in a sustainable way, gotten inflation going back to what the target is. Well, spending was down, during, uh, not down, but uh, decelerated significantly during the month of February, according to this report. Uh, do you worry about going too far and tipping the country into recession? That's the standard uh, view of what the Fed does. It is absolutely a balance, and uh, I think it's important to recognize that there are uncertainties, there are risks, and in particular, we do need to balance the risk that we uh, don't do enough, that we're not sustained, don't hold the course, and uh, don't bring inflation down. And, and again, as I mentioned before, inflation is really costly to businesses and households, and so that's important. At the same time, um, you're absolutely right. I do uh, monitor the data looking at when, the, when we might see uh, the economy turning. And some of the slower data, I think, is helpful in that context. That's what we would help to, hope to see uh, at the same time, uh, early days yet, in terms of assessing whether we really have gone as far as we need to go. Well, in terms of assessing, have you got any assessment of what impact the recent banking issues will have on the economy? There's a theory out there, banks are going to tighten credit and do some of your work for you, and that could also send us into recession. That is certainly an important factor. There's absolutely a theory out there, and uh, we could see some of that. Um, my uh, expectation is that we're likely to see at least some, but we'll have to continue to really monitor the data and see what happens in terms of how things evolve. Um, but, you know, as, as I've said, I had expected early in March that I w might think we would need to do more work, and the banking stresses... Uh, and what I think is at least a possible response of banks in terms of their own liquidity needs um, has influenced that. And so it's certainly one of the important things to factor. Uh, you know, one of the things I do want to just emphasize is I continue to see, given the resilience in our economy, that there's a pathway that we can bring inflation down without a significant downturn. And so monitoring holistically the range of data and that balance that we just talked about is a really important factor in that, uh, in that outlook. Do you think the Fed bears any responsibility for what happened with the banks because they raised rates, interest rates so fast and so far? I think that there were a number of uh, mistakes and challenges that were made. I also think it's really important that the review that uh, Vice Chair Barr is conducting that's underway be thorough, uh, unfettered, 
and that we not kind of prejudge what the lessons and findings from that report are going to be, but we commit with a bit of a sense of humility uh, that we will take those findings really seriously and act on them to uh, continue to strengthen what I see as already a sound and resilient uh, banking system. Well, what are banks in your district telling you about their situation? So, of course, we, uh, we monitor very closely, and we are in close contact with the banks throughout um, the first district, which is most of New England. And what we're seeing is that they are very focused on the, uh, their um, activities to really support the communities throughout our, our district. The, you know, as you know, small and medium banks play a critical role in a vibrant economy. And they also uh, you know, are particularly focused on what some of the risks might be, especially in the aftermath of some of the stresses that we've seen. And so we uh, very much... Uh, work to support uh, those activities and appreciate the work that they're doing. Uh, you and your colleagues talk a lot about the cumulative impact of your rate increases. Is that hitting now? Has that hit? When do we really see uh, 5% Fed funds rate have an uh, impact? Yeah, so that's a really important question. And um, the way that I think about it is that there are absolutely lags. There's some sectors, some parts of the economy that see the increase in rates and they respond relatively quickly. And I would put housing markets there. We certainly saw uh, responses in housing markets to tighter financial conditions relatively quickly, and that's what we would expect. At the same time, other markets, such as labor markets, often are impacted over time. And it really is only in the second half of 2022 that our uh, interest rates got to a broader range that were quite restrictive. And so my assessment is that it will still be uh, some time, but over the coming quarters, we really should see other uh, sectors of the economy respond to the tightening that is already kind of factoring through the system. Well, I guess we'll check back with you in the fall. Uh, one last question, Tom Keene. Uh, since I know the Red Sox lost yesterday and you're on record as saying that the season is over, let me ask the uh, Boston Fed Bank president, one loss, uh, is the season over for Absolutely the Red Sox? Absolutely not. <laughs> and we look forward to our Red Sox and our other teams uh, having a wonderful season and uh, many exciting games ahead. All right, Tom, somebody she for you to debate that. with. She absolutely <laughs> nailed that. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Michael Zeldin is described by that adjunct professor at American University, uh, Washington College of uh, Law. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. 
What was your first day at Justice like ages ago? Is the Justice Department now the same Justice Department where you walked in out of Binghamton in your legal practice years ago? I believe it is. I believe that under Merrick Garland, they are committed to the rule of law and to following the facts and the law and to dispense justice even handedly. So, yes, I think they are. What will we see Tuesday if we have a presumed arraignment of X number of items? Can you prejudge that or pre-analyze that? Well, we can guess that Trump is going to be charged with a campaign file violation, campaign law violation, and a business records violation. The business records will probably be 10 or 12 different business entries that reflect payment to Michael Cohen as legal fees, which were in fact repayment of the Stormy Daniels $130,000 hush money payment. So we might see a 10 or 12 count indictment, but really it boils down to one hush money payment by Cohen to Stormy Daniels, and then a 10 part or 12 part reimbursement of Cohen for that. That is a business crimes offense in New York, and it is a misdemeanor. They can make it a felony if they say that those payments were made as part of a other crime, and that other crime is a federal campaign elections crime, a theory not previously tested in New York. So it's not a simple case, but that I think will be the outline of what we'll see on Tuesday. Michael, there are people who are watching this who are frustrated to be dragged back into wall-to-wall circus coverage of this question of, you know, hush money paid to uh, people who may or may not have had uh, affairs. This is really uh, one consequence of an era that a lot of people want to perhaps move on from, move forward, and yet the erosion of the trust in the judicial system continues. How much do prosecutors weigh this type of social response when deciding whether to go forward? It's part of the calculus, but it shouldn't be the primary calculus. The primary calculus has to be, were laws violated and is accountability required for that law violation? And I think that in this case, though it's an old case by current standards, it is a case that I think the Manhattan District Attorney's Office felt accountability was required and therefore they brought it. Now, Yes, it's true that people would like to move on from this, but people would like to move on from January 6th, and there needs to be accountability there. And people want to be moving on from all sorts of things in the Trump era. But we still need a reconciliation with what occurred so that we can learn from it and move forward as a country away from it. Given the fact that you just talked about the the nature of this particular crime, do you think that there will be blowback to the New York prosecutors going forward with this? There already is. I mean, he's already been labeled as a Soros-funded liberal and a racist by the former president. So, yes, I think mm-hmm. that part of the strategy in the court of public opinion is going to be to demonize Bragg and try to delegitimize right. the prosecution. Michael, I, it's the honest thing, folks. I remember exactly where I was standing 
on the OJ decision years ago, and you provided the nation with legal coverage at, at that time. Michael Zeldin, Donald Trump was 27, 28 years old in 1974, where Wilbur Mills and, you know, was in the Jefferson Tidal Basin and the scandal and uproar then and the 14 other scandals you followed. Is the job changed for federal prosecutors because of the cultural acceptance of this or that vice along the way? Is the job now of your world totally different than it was in 1974? Well, yes and no. So when Wilbur Mills and Fannie Fox fall into the tidal basin, I don't think people were talking then in Me Too terms. I think that was thought of as, well, that's just the way mm -hmm. the system works. Now, in the aftermath of the Me Too movement, I think that sort of behavior is intolerable, and that's good. And so I think, for example, had Bill Clinton done what he did with Monica Lewinsky, now he would have been removed from the office of president. I think that we're at a better time now than we were then with right. respect to this misogynistic behavior. Michael Zeldin, for our audience international, what should they look for on Tuesday when we get this arraignment? How should we approach the news frenzy that we're going to see? I really think that a lot of that depends on how Donald Trump wants to play this. That is to say, if he wants to do what the Justice Department would like to do or the Department, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office would like to do, he'll come in through a private entrance in a car, he'll go up in the judge's elevator, he'll go into the courtroom, he'll make his um, not guilty plea, he'll be fingerprinted and mugshot, he'll go back down that elevator and leave. And that will be the end of the day, a, a one hour mm -hmm. process. If he elects to make a spectacle of it, wanting to be handcuffed or go out in front of the court and talk about how he's the most persecuted person in the history of America, then you'll have a street scene that really won't be controllable uh, as easily. So hopefully he'll do the right thing and just try this case in the court of law. But, you know, Donald Trump is Donald Trump and he'll do what he thinks is in his best interest, irrespective of whether it's in the national or the city's best interest. Michael Zeldin, thank you for joining Bloomberg Surveillance this morning. He is a former federal prosecutor, years of public service in our Department of Justice. Elon Musk, meet Jim Bianco. Jim Bianco is what Twitter is all about, and he is definitively led on Twitter in this banking crisis with intelligent threads. He joins us right now. Have the flows stopped? The deposit flows, the money market flows, where are we right now? It hasn't stopped, but it has slowed down a little bit. But it is still, if you go back to prior to March 8th, a huge number of, mo of money is moving from the banks to higher-yielding alternatives, whether it's money market funds mm -hmm. or it's uh, treasury bills or ETFs that are right. in very short term. The public has woken up. They found out that I'm getting zero at the bank. I can get four and a half in something else. If you have two hundred fifty thousand dollars, that's in the bank. That's like fifteen grand a year or fourteen grand a year, and they're making that move. They have right. been, and they're not stopping. Is it still destabilizing? There seems to be a zeitgeist out there that, well, that was harsh, Silicon Valley and all that, but we're through that, and now there'll be a lesser instability. Do you buy it? Yes and no. Yes, the the initial response that 
Is another bank going to fail? Probably not at this point. Is there going to be another hemorrhage? Hopefully not. But is the public going to slow down? Are they going to say, oh, I'm fine with two basis points, literally, at my Chase account, and I'll just leave my money there? No, they're not going to do that either. So the flow, I think, away from the low-yielding bank deposits to high-yielding alternatives will continue, and that will continue to pressure banks as they struggle to understand their deposit base. So let's talk about those money market funds, which reached $5.2 trillion as the latest data from ICI that came out on Wednesday. We have seen it increase at an astronomical pace over the past two weeks with $100 billion alone. Over the past four weeks, more than $300 billion of inflows, which is taking us back to the pandemic era. Where do you expect this to go? What are you looking for for when this hits the breaking point at a time when you're also starting potentially to see the ramifications of the rate hikes and other capacities? I think once you see the, um, the spread between deposit rates and market rates collapse and basically offer the same deal, as long as, like I said, as long as you get 1% or less in the bank and you can get four more than four in a money market fund, that is going to continue. Also keep in mind, in the post-financial uh, crisis era, 75% of the money that in, is invested by a money market fund is either in a T-bill or a Fed reverse repo. So in the old days, pre-2009, you'd say, well, the money's going to money market funds. They buy commercial paper, and they still fund corporate America. Well, they still do that, but not nearly to the degree that they used to. They're funding the government, and they're funding the Fed now. So translate this into six months from now and what this means in terms of access to credit, either defaults <laughs> or simply firings and sort of a, a, restraint, a restraint with respect to business plans. How much more do you see that than perhaps is getting priced in? Well, I, I do worry about that. Collectively, the regional banks are $6.8 trillion in assets. Collectively, they're larger than J.P. Morgan and Bank of America combined. So collectively, they matter. They fund 80% of commercial real estate, 50% of personal loans, 40% of, of commercial industrial loans, if they've lost visibility on their deposit base and they don't know what's driving their depositors and their depositors are leaving and going somewhere else, they're going to pull back on their lending. I, a, a quick point. When you ask when we talk about banks, I always like to ask people, what do you think a bank is? And most people would say, it's a warehouse where I keep my money and I get an interest rate. Okay, that is the definition of a bank. But for regulators and bankers and everybody else, it's a, it's a credit intermediation. It's a way to get a loan. It's a way to extend a business. And if the warehouse of money is going somewhere else, that lending app, uh, action is going to really change. We're seeing that in the price of bank stocks. Where are we not seeing this priced in? Well, the thing about bank stocks is there's two things about them. Is it, Are they pricing in potential more defaults or to failure? Or what I think they're pricing in is um, a squeeze of their margins because they're going to have to raise deposit rates and their profitability is going to be under pressure. That's why the bank stocks have not really recovered mm -hmm. because there's a worry that in order to get past this problem, they have to start making <clears throat> less money. Let's bring it back to the Fed. Economic data here in seven minutes. Michael <clears throat> McKee will join us uh, uh, with that. Jim Bianco, the Fed here, and we had no landing, this landing, dot, 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 O'Hare landing, whatever the landing is. What's the efficacy of a pause right now? Or as I mentioned earlier in the show, how about three pauses? Pause, 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 just to wait to see to get to July to see where we are. Is a pause a good thing? Um, if, if we continue to have a credit crisis or credit problem, yes. <clears throat> but the Fed is not thinking pause right now. They're thinking about inflation. They're thinking about a pre-March 8th world. <clears throat> and whether or not we are going to continue to see 
you know, high inflation, persistent inflation, a no landing, a strong economy. If that's what they believe, they're going to continue to move forward with their rate hikes. But if we start to see a slowdown in credit, that should lead them to a pause. Cubs, White Sox, what do you think? What's the story in Chicago this year? Yeah, they're both um, 100% right now, 1-0, and oh, and uh, we're at the <clears throat> Cody Bellinger era in the, in the north side of town, and we're still in the Tim Anderson era in the south side of town. Which way are you tilting? I mean, who, who are you going to see? This is a hugely important Midwest thing. It really is. At this point, I, I hate to say it, but I'm kind of leaning towards the Cubs. I've always kind of had a bias for the White Sox, yeah, but the Cubs yeah. are the more interesting team right now. So we got news we can use there. You see that? <laughs> south side. Oh, Let's go. Jim yes. Bianco, thank you. And, and Jim, congrats. Congratulations on being definitive on Twitter. I mean, if Elon Musk needs to know anything about the communicative thrust in the crisis of Twitter, there's other people out there as well. But Bianco's doing these threads. You can just feel all of Twitter just stops and goes, oh, God, another Bianco thread. I got to read it. It's a continuation of the amazing notes and the amazing reports that he's put out for decades. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Joining us now and all timely is Matt Luzzetti. He's chief U.S. economist at Deutsche Bank, who had a shocking call long ago and far away of economic slowdown, but was emphasizing it would be out there somewhere where so many others were looking for immediate economic slowdown. We can recalibrate this morning with Matt Luzzetti. I guess we see disinflation out there. Can you establish off this data disinflationary vectors in goods and services? Yeah, I think we need to put the disinflation into context. It's still a 0.3% core PCE, month on month print, still well above the Fed's objective. 4.6% year on year is well above the Fed's objective. We were expecting this to be a bit softer than CPI, in part because airfares were much weaker in the PCE data. We'll have to see uh, you know, what we get in the core uh, services X shelter, which has been Chair Powell's main focus. But I think what we'd see from this data is a little bit softer than expected, but still well above the Fed's objective. Still, to Mike's point, I mean, this is basically inflation perhaps not as hot, but growth also slowing perhaps more than people had expected. At what point does that story start to get priced in more? In other words, not exactly supportive of this robust, we can make it through anything kind of narrative. Yeah, we saw it yesterday with the with the GDP uh, revisions. Uh, consumer spending revised down. Basically, the domestic economy didn't grow in Q4. We have an alternative version. GDI was actually negative in, in Q4. So I do think you have some evidence of, of slowing in the economy. We, we have to be cognizant. You had a lot of strength in January. And so a lot of this is a give back to that. I think it all comes down to the labor market. You know, Do we eventually begin to see that to soften? Do we eventually begin to see employment gains slowing? 
uh, unemployment insurance rolls picking up? I think that's the key question from the Fed's perspective. A lot of people are wondering whether the Fed's going to cut rates later this year in the face of whatever weakness right now materializes later as a greater weakness. How is the response going to be at a time when you do say that inflation is well above their targets? They need to bring it down, but it is going down, and a lot of people think it will continue to do so as time grinds on. Yeah, I think you know inflation is obviously well above their objective. The way that Chair Powell has been talking about the labor market is it's either extremely tight or tight to an unhealthy degree, and so there's no uh, difference in the, in or tension in their dual mandate at, at this point. I think the real issue comes when that tension arises. Uh, we think it begins to arise this year, as you see the unemployment rate begin to to increase at a time where inflation is still well above their objectives. You know their own forecast at the end of this year have 4.6% on the unemployment rate, about 3.6% on, on core PC, and, and them not cutting at this point. We expect that they cut rates in January, um, but a lot of it depends on how this credit shock plays out. You know, Certainly, it could mean that the recession's earlier, labor market weakens earlier, and the Fed has to cut earlier. Susan Collins will be with us in 10 minutes with Michael McKee. She's absolutely definitive academics, as are you from UCLA, and she has a Harvard-MIT uh, heritage. And she's been at Michigan. And Michigan has a cottage industry of studying inflation and price change. When they debated the Fed, and whether voting or non-voting, when Susan Collins leans forward and talks about inflation, does she talk about the same inflation that Peter Hooper talks about or that Mohammed Elarian talks about or that Lau Brainerd talks about? Is everybody on the same page on what to look at? Yeah, I think her speech yesterday was was very clear. She she broke down the the basket into the three components that Chair Powell has been emphasizing: core goods, shelter, and core services. Ex shelter. I thought what was most interesting from her comments yesterday is she used a language about rate hikes that was a bit different than the statement. She said that additional tightening will likely be necessary. You know, not May, which is what <clears> the statement <throat> indicated. I thought that was a firmer indication of another rate hike, at least at the May FOMC meeting. That's our base mm-hmm. case at the moment. But I was surprised about that. I opened the Quinnipiac game for him yesterday with the slew rate of this rate rise. It's just incredible to how quick we got here, and in hindsight, maybe too quick. What's the efficacy of a pause? When you at Deutsche Bank sit around and say, lift, cut, or pause, to me, a pause gives you optionality. Am I wrong on that? No doubt it can, um, but I think it's a, a multifaceted question. You know, if they pause, what does the market do in response to that? You know, we have a market that has been pricing rate cuts earlier than the Fed has wanted. Uh, if they pause, what happens with that? I think rate cuts come much sooner and, and earlier, and I think that's a difficult. Really, dynamic. they can't pause and say we're just pausing to see the data, even if we think it's going up. I think it's very difficult for them to pause and not pull forward the market's pricing Interesting. Of, of rate that's cuts. Key. I'm a bit distracted over here because I'm trying to understand this market movement, and it basically seems to say a soft landing looks more certain after this data comes out. What's your take on that? I mean, do you think that what we have seen from the data, from the response mechanism, from central bankers, that we're heading closer or further away from a soft landing? So I I think it all depends on how you're viewing this credit shock. Um, We think it, it can be material. But to be quite honest, at the moment, it's it's speculative because we don't have data on how it's playing out. You know, we're, we're looking towards the Fed Senior Loan Officer Survey uh, in early May. Everybody is. We're looking at the H8 data later later today to see what's happening with CNI loans, CRE loans. What we saw out of the Fed's balance sheet data yesterday was supportive. It's you know things are not getting worse. We we saw an aggregate reduction in their lending facilities so far. 
Um, but we do think that credit conditions are going to tighten. The way that we've tried to quantify it suggests it could be anywhere from half a percent on growth to, to certainly more than 1%. But at this point, it's difficult to gauge. If, if that does tighten, I think it certainly means hard landing is, is, is more, uh, more likely than even we were anticipating. Moments ago, Lisa, oil. $75 a barrel. American oil from that 69 level up to 75. Just an example of this correlated lift away from all the gloom. This feeling we're going to make it through. I mean, oil has been its own animal with a lot of other specific stories, but there has been this feeling we will get through. And if there is some sort of downturn, it will be short and shallow was the theme. And now it's maybe we won't get one, the no landing, and maybe we're back to that. Do you still believe that if we prolong some sort of recession, it will be a worse recession. Not necessarily. I, I think the way that we typically think about this is imbalances can build up the longer that this goes on, and therefore the recession can be deeper, more protracted as you have to delever. Um, you know, this time around, we haven't seen mm. the imbalances being built. Um, you have household balance sheets that are in, in very good shape. Um, you have a housing market has, that is already going through the correction. You know, we haven't seen overbuilding <clears throat> certainly take place there. So our view is still that it, this is a moderate recession. It looks a lot like the early 1990s. We've always thought it happens in the second half of this year and haven't really changed that view. I think it's consistent with what we're seeing. I would not say that just because we got a 0.3% on core PCE that we've shifted to a soft landing type narrative here. You know, inflation is still well too high for the Fed's like Equities lifting here as well, and the two-year yield comes in 4.10. We're looking at the two-year, folks, just because of the banking crisis. It's got some more information than 352 on the 10-year yield. Let's review your home run call. You came out and said recession. Everybody got all bent out of shape. But what you really did is said recession in late 2023. How do you nudge that out? What economic data would, would force you to move your recession call that's been fabulous into 2024? Yeah, I think it's again all about the, the labor market the jobs. And, it's and, and, labor. and what are you seeing? And, and not only because it's, you know, if you, if you see the unemployment rate rise, it's always you know, shows a recession is happening. But the labor market tells us about the underlying strength in the consumer and household. And so if we're producing strong wage gains, strong income uh, gains, the idea that the consumer least, can remain resilient in the, the recession further off mm -hmm. is, is the key question. I mean, it's a Luzzetti statistic. I missed it yesterday because I was uh, doing the Quinnipiac thing. Claims 191 to 198. Yeah. We're going to stop the show right now and get some humility with Daniel Ives, the senior equity analyst at Wedbush now, who absolutely nailed have courage, stay with Apple. You've heard me tell this story before. A zillion reasons Apple was going to blow up ago. Lawrence Haverty and I stood on Fifth Avenue and discussed all the reasons the Apple game was done. It's not. There were so many reasons to sell Apple 90 days ago. What did you see 90 days ago that gave you confidence to be long Apple? It's the install base of Apple is still underappreciated by investors. And I think ultimately what we've seen with our checks in Asia is that demand, despite many yelling mm -hmm. fire in a crowded theater, has actually held in more rock of Gibraltar. And as that's played well, out, that's the key. Let's get out front of Mark Gurman here, who, who owns the high ground on Apple technology gossip and all that. Is part of your calculus of Apple hire a new chip? Because to me, it's the chips at the, the bedrock of why they do well. Are we going to see new chips with this June meeting or soiree or whatever they're well, I think that I think you have, and you're going to have chips as well as the ARVR in terms of Apple Glass. And I think it just shows that even though many say innovations in the rearview mirror, you have the biggest install base in consumer, and now you're just further monetizing with services. And I think 
In, in these environments, you can never underestimate how bad a management team is or just how good. The tactician, the Hall of Famer, Cook, I think is again going to navigate Apple, in our opinion, back to a $3 trillion market. When can we stop calling it big tech and talk about communication companies and uh, you know hardware companies and cloud companies and something much more specific that caters to a very different cycle than perhaps each of the companies combined? Well, I think that's starting to happen. I mean, if you look at like cloud, you look at Microsoft and what Nadell is doing in Redmond, that demand's held up. And, and that started to, to seep in what we've seen with Benioff at Salesforce and the broader group. Cybersecurity, I think, is a pocket of strength. But I think overall, and Lisa, you hit it on a great, in terms of big tech, the, the cost cutting, once that started to happen, the bottom in tech, in my opinion, was done. And that's why I believe there's still another 10 to 15 percent upside in tech. But there's a 10 to 15 percent upside at a time and a lot of people think that it's already gotten overblown. That said, there are different kinds of job cuts. There are job cuts because you have excess, because you overhired, and because you have a lot of uh, perhaps excess weight. There's also the kind of cuts that come because you see the potential for growth diminishing at a time when possibly you cannot borrow in the same kind of way and there potentially is less demand. And, oh yeah, people already loaded up on devices and on services during the pandemic. How do you distinguish between the two? Yeah, and well, I think you see it in terms like profitless tech and frothy tech. A lot of that really hasn't come back. But I think what you're seeing with a lot of bigger tech, or I'll say like high quality tech, you know, they've cut costs. They were spending like 1980s rock stars. That stopped. And now numbers have stabilized. And also on the other side of this now, you are seeing strong demand that's really starting to come back despite this macro. And I think that's what we've seen with Apple specifically in China. When you talk about and talk about China, we'll get there in a second. But just going forward, are there any tech names that you do not think will participate in this gain of 15 to 20 percent as you predicted? Look, I think when you look at well, shared donors and when you look at the Cisco's, some of the hardware players, you, what's really ultimately happening is the likes of Microsoft. You're seeing some bigger tech players more and more, like a Palo Alto and cybersecurity further expand, mm -hmm. and and I think that's I think the, the the ultimate headline of one Q earnings is going to be wow didn't fall off a cliff, and I view that as more something I embrace rather than fear in terms of one Q. And right now, look, the New York City cab driver is bearish on tech, and I continue to <laughs> like that dynamic as it plays out. Oh, it's time for the Gossip Hour here at Bloomberg Surveillance, and we can always do that with a well-dressed Dan Ives. A Disney-Apple mating. I, I, that, to me, is just like an IB frenzy there. I mean, the lunches at the Sunset Tower Hotel, Mr. Cook's hanging out with Mr. Iger, and they're at the Sunset Tower. Ives is over a couple tables. The bankers are surrounded. Any ability for Apple to acquire Disney? Look, I think it's a possibility. I think that the difference now for Apple is that this is the first time, I think, really in their history that they're going to have to significantly look at M&A. You know, I think when you look at Disney, I think if TikTok's potentially on the table, depending on what happens with Cepheus in terms of a forced deal, mm -hmm. I think this is the time that Cupertino, you know, that's really never done M&A is going to have to look at this. And look, if yeah. Disney comes... That's something that strategically is a marriage makes a ton of sense and a creative. My take on this, and I'm not going to try to be Moffat Nathanson here or Daniel Ives, is these mergers always fall apart when non-creatives take over the creative process. Do you have the confidence that Apple management can be humble enough to let Disney and the creatives like Mr. Iger 
be creative? Yeah, I think that's something that I think uniquely they could balance that. Because ultimately, if you look at that marriage, what that could do, Apple and Disney, that would really be the golden goose. And I think something that Apple's been missing, as we know, is content. And, and that's something in terms of streaming services. That's going to be a $100 billion business in terms of services. I think that's going to be the next leg of the stool. German talks about this all the time. Services, that is the really jewel that I think has been the key re-rating here in Apple. You mentioned TikTok. You mentioned China and with respect to, to Apple. And how much is this the fly in the ointment? We hear that Tim Cook is heading to uh, to China potentially in April. This is being reported by Reuters this morning. Is this going to become a liability for companies at a time of increasing tensions between the U.S. and China? Well, Cook's part politician, part CEO. And I think what he's been able to do as a tactician better than anyone out there is, is tightrope. Because ultimately, Apple, it's basically 100% iPhone production, 20% in demand. But that ultimately continues right. to be part of their success. Slow news day. You're at 190 on Apple, up 17%. When are we going to get an Ivesy and Lyft above $200? Look, I think right now. Come on, I got to make some news, Dan. In, in in terms of our check, this this is a stock that I believe is going to, you know, have I believe back to the three trillion dollar market cap over the what next three to six months. What price is that right months. now? Look, I think you start to look at, you know, ultimately you you start to look now. What I believe fifteen twenty hour upside from here, we start to approach three trillion. I didn't get it out of him. He's you know. He's got compliance on him. Dan Ives, thank you. That was wonderful. Just, I, <laughs> I thought that that was really interesting, especially given <clears throat> that so many people are shrugging off the story of tech preeminence right now. It's simply people pricing in lower rates and that pulling the story right back. And it seems like the efficiency mm -hmm. story coming in perhaps in a more significant way. I just, I'm so this is I can't get it. Wait a minute. Qantas, I'm surrounded by Mets fans. I just figured, look at this. Let's go Mets. It's a Metsathon. Verlander looked yeah. pretty good there. Oh, he he, he, yeah, I think this is the year for the, the Mets. Sides. Are you going? Are you going, you know, like this weekend or soon with a horde? <laughs> I'm going to go crawl into bed and stay there for the whole weekend. Like I think everybody in the market is because I think it's been an exhausting couple of weeks. And I think that I'm yeah. looking for, you know, just a, a dark, quiet space. You understand we call that, that, that the land. We call that the <laughs> land of the Boston Red Sox. Dan, <laughs> 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 go away. Dan Ives with us Thank from Wedbush. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash Future Investor slash radio.